Welcome to Life in the Cloud, the official podcast of Tuple Technologies. Join us each week to hear from experts in cloud migration and IT management as we talk about the latest technologies and trends in cloud and other exciting new developments in tech. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Life in the Cloud. I'm your host, Chris Reddy, and today I'm joined by Eric Daimler of Conexus. Eric, thanks for being here. Good to be here, Chris. Awesome. Could you get us started by giving us a little bit of a background about yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, I am fortunate to have spent 20 plus years in and around AI, more generally in computer science. I am often told that I am rare, if not unique, by having experience as a venture capitalist, a professional investor, as a researcher and academic. I was a faculty at Carnegie Mellon at one time. And as a businessman, and even having spent time in Washington, D.C., in policy, working for the U.S. federal government, those four different perspectives in AI and computer science are rare, if not unique. I'm often more widely known as someone that spent time in the last year of the Obama administration as an authority on AI and robotics or machine intelligence, as my business card said at the time. That is, was a fantastic experience, as, as terrific as one might think, and a legitimate privilege to have served the American people. I am now fortunate to lead with a terrific group and some wonderful co-founders, Connexus AI, which is the first spin-out of MIT's math department to have the Institute tell it. It addresses this breathtaking discovery in a domain of mathematics which I was previously unfamiliar, called category theory or categorical math. It is really something that's going to change the world. As math can tends to do as a law of nature, you know, you might think that the more math, the better. And that may be true. But if I had to choose what high school age children might study or what we might encourage for education more broadly, I might substitute geometry, trigonometry, and even calculus for category theory. It's really the math of the future. And it's going to make algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus look like Latin. That's very interesting. Eric, I know that we'll get into Conexus, but I want to hear a little bit more about category theory. I'd imagine there's a lot of audience members that have never heard of it before. Yeah, I hadn't either. Like I said, I found it to be difficult, but actually a little easier than I recall learning calculus the first time. It's not quite like this, but there's an easy way to understand it. You could say it's related, excuse me, to graph theory, where my PhD was focused. You know, graph theory is a study of relationships and connections between knowledge. Category theory could be considered to be graph theory, but with more structure. So a more rich set of information can be encoded in those graphs. And we're all familiar with graph theory, if not in practice, but in the visualizations where we'll see the internet represented. Those are often in graphs. I was fortunate to participate in some of the anti-terrorist efforts after 9-11, where we used graph theory to analyze and attack terrorist networks. Today, it's used for such prosaic applications as fraud detection, or it is what's behind well-known companies like Palantir or Facebook. They have graphs. You could say Facebook is the largest social graph. Category theory 
is this fantastic technology to call it uh, to call math that allows knowledge to be transferred to another domain without a loss of meaning. So an example might be the equation for a circle, x squared plus y squared, you know, that Cartesian coordinate description of a circle. It's super easy in geometry. So we got to get that problem into geometry. It's very difficult to represent a circle in algebra, right? It's kind of nonsensical. A few people would understand it. I don't think I would. But in geometry, x squared plus y squared, it, it defines every little point on a circle. So that's a way of which we can transfer problems from one domain to another domain. And, you know, there's a lot of domains in math we're all familiar with. I mentioned a few at the beginning, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, but, you know, there are higher order ones like graph theory that we mentioned. There's also set theory or game theory that we sometimes hear about. If you want to transfer these problems in math between domains of math, you can't do it effectively without guaranteeing that the semantics, the meaning, remained integrous, right? That continued. If it changed the meaning, well, then the transfer didn't apply at all. The breakthrough that we apply, the breakthrough that's really transformationally applicable to IT, IT infrastructure globally over the extended 20 years, is that this applies to databases, or rather it can apply to databases. So that, through that, the whole world opens up because everything runs on databases. You know, every bit of knowledge is, is stored somewhere in a database. Relational databases are what we're most often familiar with. Graph databases are you either a different type or an expression of uh, relational databases. Everything is stored in a database. So the breakthrough here of being able to exchange knowledge from one domain to another domain without a loss of meaning it's virtually unfathomable. It gives me just thinking about now what the implications are, because we can't address all of the potential applications here of the breakthrough of this math of category theory. It's a big deal. It allows for interconnectedness in a way that we have been limited in our daily experience over the last decades, really ever since we had this, or we've experienced this data explosion in the 80s and then continuing through the 90s with the uh, public internet. We've been trying to catch up with this explosion of data and the interoperability challenges caused by this explosion of data. So category theory addresses that. It's really the only way to ultimately address that. Everything else starts to become more and more fragile. You have more and more errors as the internet plumbing, as IT plumbing gets woven into our lives, we'll become generally less and less tolerant of these errors because it'll slow us down. You know, besides lives being at stake, besides our economy being more fragile, but because of it, it'll just slow us down by not having things interoperable. You know, the daily experience we have of interoperability showed its public face back in the early days of the Obama administration when there, we'll say, a less than smooth introduction of healthcare.gov. You know, that sort of trip up happens all the time. And it's really because heterogeneous, you know, mixed matched data doesn't like to talk to one another. It doesn't like to talk to each other. It doesn't work smoothly as one might think in theory. This is the, the old adage, you know, theory is great in theory, but, right? but in practice, not, not so much. 
You know, an example is we work with a large hospital in New York City. And these are some very smart people with a very well-funded hospital. We were working with them early in the COVID response, working to do research both on drugs, you know, to the degree that they could be assisting, and also in their response to their patients, to their constituents in the New York metro area. What we found fascinating in looking at their database, their capturing of data, and every company has a version of this somehow, is that they could represent, in a particular example, diabetes differently in the same hospital system. So you might think, well, diabetes is really something that's well studied, if not well understood. You know, we don't have a cure for it necessarily in any sort of permanent way without injections of insulin. But we found that the same parts of the hospital would be representing the knowledge, we'll say, around diabetes differently. Because you ultimately have to put this in a database. You know, you're going to put this in a piece of paper, scribble it on a piece of paper. You might be a little more modern and scribble it on a tablet. But in some case, it's going to have to be coded, encoded, whatever you want to say. And one department, for example, might say... Diabetes, restrict. Yes, no. Diabetes, yes, no. Diabetes. You know, every row is going to fill out that column. Diabetes, yes, no. And then another database might say, maybe it was just the structure of the database. It might have been the data model that was originally developed by the data architects. Might have been just the management or the socialization of that team. Might be that some of the needs of that department represent diabetes differently. So the next one could say, to the question, diabetes, the cell might be, well, had diabetes back in 94, but better now. It's completely different than yes, no. And then a third one, for the same reasons, might represent it completely differently still. They, that one might say, diabetes, insulin shots of 500 milliliters twice a day, got diabetes too, you know, whatever. They could be completely different representations of the same thing, diabetes. That representation happens everywhere, every industry, governments, nonprofits, for-profits, everywhere around the world. Data is represented differently for perfectly good reasons. You know, date of birth, is it represented as month, day, year, year, month, day? Those sort of formats, that happens. You know, that's all fine if you're talking about what used to be called big data. If you're talking about tens or thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of data points, but if you're talking about millions, billions, let alone trillions, trillions of data points, we're all going to closer to kind of internet scale data, then you have a phase change in how you relate to data. You know, this is solid to liquid, liquid to get. Like you have to completely relate to your data differently because you can't test your way out of guaranteeing that there's no catastrophic failure hidden in there somewhere. You know, and some of these conclusions matter. You know, in the case of diabetes, you don't want some probabilistic outcome of a drug dose, right? Not if it's you or some one of your family or friends. You know, and generally you don't want it to happen to anybody, right? But you don't want some, well, you know, we get it 99% right. <laughs> some applications, I want 100% right. And the trillions, it'll never happen. Trillions, you know, maybe even billions of data points. It doesn't work out that way. So we find that this math, this discovery and category theory is all that's going to be the only game in town over the next decade to two decades. As companies, governments, nonprofits, as organizations develop more and more sophisticated data models, more sophisticated 
interactions with partners at more sophisticated regulatory environments. We see that right, this right now with internet laws for data locations now emerging with different regions. As we see that sophistication continue to increase, you have to look for a different solution. So we have one customer, one of the ride sharing companies, Uber, right? The Uber, we've all heard of them and, and at least my bias about them, my prejudice about them prior to us in getting engaged was these are some very smart people. True, in my experience. They have an effectively infinite balance sheet with which to fund an ideal information technology infrastructure. True. But Uber, like every other company or organization in the world, was focused on their mission. Governments are focused on their mission. Nonprofits are obviously focused on their mission. And for-profits are focused on their mission. The mission of having a good organization, profitable in this case. Not, 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 not. The optimization is not towards having an ideal IT infrastructure. So as they grow up, they grew up in their particular case by jurisdiction, by city. So they would have an IT infrastructure as they went into a city, let's say Los Angeles. And that infrastructure would be different by when they went into San Diego, or let alone Austin. So they would then want to make good business decisions. Good business decisions would be the analysis of fair, appropriate fares to maximize the happiness of the drivers and the happiness of the riders. You know, supply-demand balance relative to the rates, how does weather affect that? That could be an easy business question that they might want to answer. The process for that with Uber was slow because they had to do an analysis of Los Angeles in this example, and then separately do it for San Diego, and then do a statistical comparison. They couldn't analyze the whole of California, let alone the whole of the United States, North America, or the world. And that statistical comparison, again, we're talking probabilistic outcomes, had a certain friction in speed, to be sure, and also had a friction in efficacy. So this goes back to our hospital example as well. If you try doing statistical comparisons between different silos of data, you know, that can be good as far as it goes, but there's going to be some loss of accuracy or efficacy in doing the statistical comparison. So what is the solution? Uber, when they're brilliant, again, my bias, true, or the people there are very, very smart, was that they had to look deeper than computer science. You know, I, my PhD is in computer science, so I would like to think that every solution in the world is in computer science, but Uber came to the conclusion that the answer was deeper than computer science. They had looked at technologies such as the tools from ancient companies like Informatica or Ab Initio that are facilitated by often the employees of companies like Tata or Wipro or Tipco. They also looked at technologies that had emerged since the public internet, such as RDF and OWL, and found them to just not scale well to the size of their needs. So they looked deeper. They looked deeper than computer science. They looked into the math. They found that category theory, this is Uber doing it, they said, we need to solve this problem at the level of math. They found category theory. And then after they determined that category theory would supply the ultimate solution, they looked around the world. Who's the leader in the applications of category theory? And they found us. Think through really through MIT, but we are fortunate enough to be 40 miles north of Uber. So we're also close geographically back when that mattered. So we collaborated with Uber 
on a solution to this problem, a solution to doing business questions globally, not just isolated, siloed business questions. How do we bring all of that data together? And, you know, and to have them say it, the ultimate solution with which we collaborated saves them millions of dollars, low single digit millions of dollars each year on the efficiencies brought to their business from being able to answer these business questions with more authority, more accuracy, and more speed. That's the power of category theory. Another example earlier in the pandemic was in the distribution of personal protective equipment, PPE. But we work with a large logistics company. I had no idea how big some of these logistics companies were. This, this company had 100,000 employees and their client had 100,000 employees. And that client had 1,000 ships around the world. Each one of those 1,000 ships had tens of thousands of shipping containers. I mean, this was like in physical scale, the equivalent of, you know, internet scale, <laughs> hard to keep track. And so their question was, where is the PPE? Or, or more to the point, where is my client's PPE? So that do I direct it to Los Angeles or Lisbon? You know, where is it and where do I put it? That question is something that they want to ask all the time. But those sort of questions in their traditional infrastructure, because mismatched data doesn't like to talk to each other, would take about four days, four days to answer. So it's a high friction. You can't really ask a business question unless you're prepared to get a delay as if you're controlling a rover on Mars. <laughs> you know, you know, speed of light, wait till it gets back, wait till you get the reply, right? And that's how a lot of businesses operate today. So what they will do as a reaction to that is they'll often not ask the question, that really happens. They'll scale down the question. So they won't say, well, where in the world is the PPE? They'll just say, well, I'll narrow it down. There, maybe there's a ship that's within 100 nautical miles of Los Angeles. Does that have PPE on it? So they'll narrow down the question. And then they'll have to test and retest and retest some more to make sure that their answer is correct, because you don't want to be making a mistake, even like that, where you know, lives are at stake in a way with PPE, but it's also heavily economic to reroute a container ship if it's not necessary or make a wrong decision on rerouting a container ship. And those sort of decisions can happen all the time. The solution we work with in the logistics company is doing what we do with every company. We work to bring these mismatched data infrastructures, these heterogeneous in the vernacular, heterogeneous data infrastructures together in one unified view without moving bits. But mind you, for those people that actually are doing this, this sort of work day to day, the beauty of category theory is we don't move bits. There's a lot of solutions available in the world today to actually move those bits good companies that can move the bits. We don't move the bits. Category theory doesn't move the bits. Category theory just allows a, call it some sort of layer or call it a translation, what have you, to be able to bring a mathematically provable scalable solution to the integration of that data so that these better business decisions can be made. Where in the world is my PPE? Does it go to Los Angeles or does it go to Lisbon? That's very interesting, Eric. Thanks for going into so much detail about the applicability of category theory and how some of those use cases will certainly change the world and change our lives. I want to get in a little bit more about the company Conexus. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, back to the history of Conexus, 
why you started it, what was that like, and uh, kind of the life cycle of the company so far? Right. I am grateful to be joined by two ideal co-founders, David Spivak and Ryan Wisniewski. They're just uh, wonderful people, wonderful professionals, and they know what they're doing in this domain. David Spivak was a faculty at MIT when he had this discovery around category theory. It was really his insight that propelled the research that then became the software that then became the company uh, that it is today, such as it is. The books David Spivak has written are widely available. They're good reads. You know, these are not too difficult for an advanced high school student or early undergraduate or really anybody that wants a primer on category theory and the power behind this math of the 21st century. It's just worth reiterating, you know, the distinction about category theory is it's more appropriate to a digital age than calculus, than relational algebra, which are really the math of physical manifestations, the math of continuity in the case of calculus, really well matched to factories, for example, or chemical processes, to use another example. So the math of the 21st century, Professor Spivak, he'll call it the topology of the 21st century, the new way of, of analyzing the textures of knowledge. That's how what he calls category theory. So it was really his discovery, then propelled by several million dollars of taxpayer-funded research that we all benefit from, really, in the increase of prosperity that scientific, government-funded scientific research often brings. That was one of the team members in that research to then apply the discovery into something that could be manifested with or mixed with reality. <laughs> Dr. Wisniewski, he's a brilliant engineer, really, really brilliant. It may be repeating terms to say his academic credentials are top-notch, but also just a wonderful person. His knowledge of how to translate math into a system that then could be touched by enterprises is uh, really a second to none. He's just a brilliant, brilliant person. The point at which I became familiar with this was when I was in the last administration, uh, 44, Obama, when three things came at once. One was I happened to be in the government at the time, so when this got funded, the second was, I happened to have friends that liked and respected me in various parts of the government that then would bring this to my attention. So I had a good position from which to hear about things, and I had friends that told me about it. And then the third is I was fortunate to have a background in graph theory, which is kind of related, we can think about it that way, that would help me understand the importance of this discovery. So my friends told me that ARP just funded something this was separately funded in the Department of Defense in avionics, and it was funded in the Department of Commerce in and around trade. If this turns out, you know, this is going to be the next best thing since the proverbial sliced bread. I took that seriously because of the people that were telling me this news. So when I got out of the administration, I took a deeper look as a possible investment of mine. I then put in some of my own money to explore this further. We did several corporate deployments, large companies, sophisticated data infrastructures that got me comfortable that this was then a business that I could jump into and a business that I could, with integrity, bring in outside capital to have it grow. So we did that a couple of years ago. We did that a year or two after I left the administration where we got this in a position to attract outside capital. 
And it's been a terrific ride ever since. The pandemic affected us like everybody in our area, which means a little bit, but not as much as other industries were affected. And we are addressing you know, the heart of IT infrastructure. We might say that it's the most important unsolved problem in corporate IT, which is data interoperability. We might say that you know, the vision for Connexus is universal semantic IT interoperability, something that works across all infrastructures in a way that guarantees meaning as these data, as knowledge interoperates. That's the vision of Connexus, and that's the bright future that we have ahead of us. That's very interesting. Tell me um, a little bit more. I want to hone in on the actual product of Connexus. What exactly does it do and how does it work in layman's terms so I can understand as well? Well, yeah, so we have AI, but not in the AI that is familiar to many. And I'm grateful to sit on a board of an AI company that's raised $100 plus million. This, our AI is not AI like that. That company does probabilistic AI. People often know it as machine learning or the subset of machine learning called deep learning, you know, neural networks and all that. That's probabilistic AI. Before many of your listeners were in college, if not before they were born, there was another type of artificial intelligence. It was symbolic AI. We might say good old fashioned AI. And that's deterministic. That hasn't gone well in the 80s and 90s because it tended not to scale. It really flopped in its expressions of expert systems. The most famous sinkhole for shareholder value was IBM's Watson. Now, that essentially was an expert system or symbolic AI. It's had a, a bad history over the last 20 to 30 years because it didn't scale. Category theory allows that type of AI to scale, to scale without error. That's a really important part about it. It doesn't scale with any sense of there being flaws because it's math. Right, because it's math. You know, humans can have errors, but and there's certainly a garbage in, garbage out phenomenon to anything. But this is a guaranteed meaning translation in semantics. So that's the type of AI underpinning this technology. Upon that foundation of deterministic AI, symbolic AI, good old-fashioned AI, is our platform. Our platform of Connexus CQL. You know, that's a platform that can be applied in any industry for data interoperability. You know, how it works at a high level is really related to these stories that we've been telling, which is that mismatched data doesn't want to talk to each other, and data needs to interoperate in order for large organizations to function. So we want to create some sort of relationship between one set of data and another set of data. There are systems that can relate for example, a column in one set of data that says Starbucks and another you know, stock prices and so forth, and another column of data that says S-Bucks or another that would say Starbucks coffee and tea. There's, there's systems that can sometimes relate to that. But when you have tens of thousands of such ambiguities, what companies will often do is they will just leave that extra data on the floor. They just won't consider that data. Because bringing that together in a way that's provable is just too difficult. So what we do is that the math, the AI, the symbolic AI, can look across 
in a scale-free way, meaning the structure remains the same, independent of the scale. So it can go up to a, a trillions of different data points, look at a database, and determine the hidden linkages, determine the hidden connections between this data. And then we can then suggest mathematical connections between these two that allows the incorporation of Starbucks and Sbucks, or the early example, diabetes, yes, no, versus data diabetes, how long ago? We could create a mathematical connection between those two columns, those two tables, those two databases, in a way that makes that interoperability scale-free forever after. That applies in ride sharing, it applies in drug discovery, it applies in PPE distribution, it applies in to hedge funds, as in the la this last example I was offering. That's very interesting, Eric. I, I want to ask about the future of the company. What's in the future for Conexus and for category theory? It sounds like taking over the world, you know, changing the way data works at a very fundamental level. Is that the plan? You know, it's really how we interact with the data or how we interact with the world. You know, how, how my wife always describes this experience for people that they would benefit from with our company is the prosaic example of calling one's credit card company. We've all experienced this, where you call the company, you get some automated assistant, please enter your account number, right? And then you're on hold for some, in pandemic times, you know, some inordinate amount of time, right? And then some person comes on the line. Oh, can I have your account number again? Oh, and it's just for security. Uh, you know, and all of us can be still skeptical about that. And we're right to be skeptical because they're lying to you. They may not know they're lying. You know, the people can be completely well-meaning and innocent as the ones answering the phone, but they're lying. It's not because of security. It's because the systems don't talk to each other. That's how we experience this day-to-day. You know, we may not experience the hedge fund having difficulty. We may not experience the hospital not interacting with its own systems. We certainly don't experience logistics companies really having the sort of difficulty I outlined because you know, packages get there in a surprising amount of swiftness. You know, packages get to our home with a great deal of speed in today's world. But in that connection with databases, with credit card companies, with airlines, right? This happens all the time. And that's because these mismatched systems don't talk to each other. That will change. With the application of category theory to databases, systems will connect to one another. That just makes all of our daily experiences better. To say nothing of the increase in lifestyle that we'll all have from increased productivity and increased effectiveness. You know, I could say one more thing. The poor people that do this manual vocational level IT work today, integrating databases, you know, they're often overeducated for the jobs that they do. Those jobs will, in the future, more match the educational qualifications of the people doing those jobs. And so they're not just going to go through and say, Rob equals Robert, Barb equals Barbara, which is really how they have to do it today. And it's a mind numbing work. So that's an example of how a consumer will experience it and how an employee will experience it. And then obviously, the economists will love the improvement and productivity gained from data interoperability. That is very fascinating stuff. This has been great. You've given me like a very, uh, I don't know, maybe a master's level class on uh, category theory and the implications of it, how it all works. Very fascinating stuff. Eric, That I'm more or less out of questions to ask you, but I do want to ask you if there's you know, anything else you want to touch on or anything else that we didn't have a chance to discuss. I can really just encourage people or more to the point, their children to become educated in category theory. It's the math of the future. There's a lot of groups online 
to facilitate one's understanding of this. I really love it when people get involved in the adoption of technology because many of these technologies can be life-saving, quite literally. So our embrace of them through a conversation about the limitations of them, the circuit breakers that are appropriate, is really essential to uh, embracing them quickly, adopting them into our lives quickly instead of resisting them. That's really the mission, my personal mission, and it's consistent with the mission of the company, this universal semantic IT interoperability. That's very good. Okay, last question I want to ask is, if I want to learn more about category theory, where should I start? Should I just Google category theory and start researching? You know, I have to mention my co-founder's books. They're available at your favorite bookstore, David Spivak. He has two excellent books on category theory. There are others. There are other good ones <laughs> that I won't name, but you, know, but you can certainly use your favorite search engine to look under category theory and you'll find a lot of good resources. But Professor Spivak's books are an excellent place to start. There's videos online from him and from uh, Dr. Wisniewski and they're very good. Our webpage, of course, connexus.com under the resources tab also has a couple of more dense non-marketing technical papers that address the fundamental underpinnings of our tech that would also be applicable to those interested in finding out more about category theory, to be sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you again for being here, Eric. This has been a phenomenal opportunity. Good to have been here. It's a fun time. We hope you found some value in this episode of Life in the Cloud. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. You can continue the conversation with us on LinkedIn by tagging Chris Reddy, at Chris-Reddy. That's at K-R-I-S-R-E-D-D-Y in a comment or by sending a direct message. We look forward to hearing from you.